All right, everybody, today we have Ginger Gentile. Ginger Gentile, what a beautiful name, of erasingfamily.org. Ginger's here with us today, and we're going to have a serious talk um, on a very serious matter. Now, many of you know my story or my backstory. My family has faced and battled, and I can't say we really conquered it, but parental alienation is something that has happened to me, just like it's happening to a lot of you. It's one of my whys, and I've been following Erasing Family for quite some time now, and Ginger is so passionate about this work. She's created documentaries. She's gone to film festivals. She's raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, and her mission, or one of her main missions, is reuniting families and helping to rid the world. I'm going to say it. She's ambitious. Rid the world of parental alienation. So welcome, Ginger. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here, Nadja. I'm so excited to be on the show and to talk to your listeners about the Erasing Family documentary and all the work that we're doing to reunite families after divorce and separation who lose contact. Mm, mm, mm. So before we get into the serious business, everybody that comes on the show has to tell why they are crazy. So Ginger, why are you crazy? So I think I'm crazy or so I know I'm crazy. <laughs> I put her on the spot too, y'all. I, I totally yeah. forgot to like, be like, Hey, you got to tell me this. I put her, but you got to answer Ginger. You got to answer. No, no, no. I, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the, of the best one. I think I'm crazy because I'm obsessed with cats and I have a cat and I, <laughs> I, when I have to travel, I will choose Airbnbs if there is a cat. Oh, that is my, that's, it's kind of crazy. And also I think people don't know this about me because, um, in public, I'm not a very cuddly person, but with my cats, I am. a. (laughs) So you're, are you the crazy cat lady? I will be the crazy cat lady right now. I only have one cat. Okay. So let's, um, we're going to, we're going to get over, veer over to erasing family. Now I watched, um, I watched plenty of your Facebook live videos where you go in and actually talk to your community because there are people hundreds of thousands of people, I think it's safe to say, that are reaching out to you because they have been erased from their child's life. You've spoken to celebrities, reality, um, television personalities, the everyday human being, and it's no different. They have some sort of situation where the courts have probably aided them, have aided their co-parent, counterparent, because I don't like to call them co-parents, in taking this child away from them after uh, a tumultuous divorce. And, you know, you guys know what I do on my end is I try to figure out why, you know, what personality disorder does this person, are they afflicted with so that we can go into the court system and help our lawyers to unearth that and show the judges. Um, Ginger, what's your why? Why are you so passionate about reuniting families? So I think my why is more driven by what I see as a huge injustice and incompetence that's happening in the family court system. Mm -hmm. That the judges tend to not be very trained on this issue. The lawyers like to make these cases go on for more time so they can make more money. Mm. And just talking to people in the court system, very everyone says this is a huge problem. Most people don't know what to do about it, or they'll say these cases can't be solved. And I'm a firm believer that prevention is the key. Yes. And a lot of these cases could be prevented because the, the big problem 
and this is way before even the personal dynamics start, is that if you have a system that allows a parent or says it's normal for one parent to have sole custody, complete control over the child, then people know they can fight for this. And I am convinced that if this wasn't an option, that we had default shared parenting, you will always have some of these cases, but they would be reduced dramatically just because it wouldn't be an option. You couldn't go to court, you couldn't fight. And the way the system is designed now, you have to go in and say everything bad you can about the other person during a trial. So afterwards, how are you gonna co-parent with that other person? You just spend two days making them seem like the worst parent because the crazy thing about the system is that you don't have to be a good or a bad parent. That's not what the system tries to figure out. It tries to figure out who is the better parent. Mm-hmm. So you can have two awful parents and one is trying to prove they're a little bit better. You can have two great parents and one is trying to prove that one is a little bit worse. And yeah. there's a lot of financial incentives that are involved. Child support plays a huge role. Mm. Um, in giving people motivation to fight. So I think that that is where I came at it from, is more of seeing this injustice. And then I think the other part, and this comes from personal experience, is that I'm a firm believer that for the kids out there who are listening to this who maybe have lost contact with a parent, you can love a parent, you can hate a parent, but it's very different from erasing a parent. Right. And what I mean by that is that relationships are very messy. Even in great families, parent-child relationships are difficult. Right. So let's let's start from that because a lot of alienated parents or raised parents who come to me, they'll say all these problems. And sometimes I'm listening and I say, your kid is also a teenager and the fact that they yell at you is normal. Um, so, So you have to take a step back. But if a child, I think it's very important for children to realize that their parents are not perfect. They might have a parent who's not great at all, but part of becoming an adult and moving forward is acknowledging that, being grateful for what you did have, realizing what your parent couldn't give you, and then saying, and I am not going to repeat the negative. But Mm -hmm. if you have no contact with that parent, if you have them erased from your life, if you just say they're not my parent, I have nothing to do with them, you cannot learn from their errors. And be a better person, not just a better parent, but a better adult. Um, And for me, you know, having lost contact with my dad for a while and then having him come back into my life, I'm not going to say everything was all rosy at all. But, you know, whenever I am, I have a tendency not to be generous with my time, not to be a generous, not to be a generous person. And whenever I see myself slipping to that, I think to myself, wait, Ginger, you're becoming like your dad. That's a point of but reference if I didn't that know you my had. Dad, I would have been able to see that. Yeah. So I think for the kids, it's not saying, look, you have this perfect parent who you're rejecting. Um, they're a victim. You're a victim. It's saying you they're need human. Yeah. Yes. Right. And that relationship might be a little distant. Um, it might not be the most loving relationship, but otherwise, you're doomed to repeat those mistakes over and over again. And I'm sure you've seen this in this in your work. If a kid uh, grows up without a parent, that parent was erased from their lives, they're more likely either to erase the other parent when they get married and have kids or be the victim of this. Absolutely. It's a very um, interesting cycle. So I've absolutely seen it and I see it every day in my work. And, you know, um, so was your dad erased or was it a situation where it's just separation and he decided to go for a while and he came back? So my situation... My situation isn't as dramatic as the ones I deal with. I would say more than anything, my parents had a very high conflict divorce and Mm -hmm. there was 
constant fighting. There was constant bad mouthing. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, you know, ethnic slurs against each other, which of course I'm half of each. So that oh, becomes, that's you. They're attacking you. God, uh, you yeah. know. So and. Uh, also just like because they're older so just like crazy stuff because my mom's jewish my dad's um irish italian catholic mm -hmm. and they'll both say crazy stuff and, and you know as a kid you're thinking well i'm half that right um and and what what happened more with me is my father didn't know how to respond and he responded in very negative ways sometimes parents say i've done everything right and i'm sure there are parents out there that do everything right and they're just caught in this horrible court system or the very manipulative ex-partner, right. um, but also parents can respond poorly, and, and that's what my father did. So it's not that he abandoned us, but I don't think he knew how to respond to a child saying nasty things to him that the, that you know his that their mother told them to say. And what happened to me, and this is something I feel that people don't talk about enough with alienation, is they always talk about the kid who rejects the parent, right? Uh, I rejected everybody in my family, and. I think there's a lot of kids who, who go that route when they get to be adults. They're just say, my family is crazy. I don't want to have anything to do with my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, my cousins, my aunts, my grandparents. I'm done with this. And I literally moved to Argentina. I, I didn't speak Spanish. I have no connection oh, to Argentina. What? That's the furthest uh, from New York. That's like the furthest you can oh, get. Oh, God. You're like, I need to be, be away from all you guys. So I'm just going to go and start a new life elsewhere. Right. And, and then in, I spent 13 years in Argentina and that's where I made my first film, Erasing Dad, on this topic. And when I came back to the U.S. in 2015, and part of it was to try to reunite with my family, to start having relationships with them. Um, but it got so bad that when my grandmother was dying, um, I didn't want to say goodbye to her on the phone. Like, it was just that sort of just visceral rejection um, and feeling bad about it because I feel that if you are in a very come from a very abusive family and you feel lighter not talking to your family, that's one thing. But I would always do this and be crying about it, feel very awful about it, feeling guilty about it. So it wasn't this like I came to this piece, but I would just, you know, say like I don't want to talk to her, I don't want to deal with my family at all. I didn't send any Christmas cards, phone calls for years. So your way and of coping was to literally detached from every single person that caused you pain in that in that party at that point in your life exactly so so i think that you know when when people are dealing with this they also have to be aware that that is a very possible outcome it's just a complete rejection of both parents the entire family structure yeah so if you're and, a parent out there that's listening to this and you are participating in alienation even in the, the most small minuscule ways that you think is kind of harmless the child can more than likely reject you too you know it's very likely right it's it's true so like one thing that we see a lot of is that when kids are put into a loyalty bind what will often happen is they'll switch loyalties can you define what a loyalty bind is for the people out there that don't know sure a loyalty bind is when you can you are forced to show loyalty to only one of two people basically right mm -hmm. so in this case would be your parents this is how i understand it so correct okay. me if i'm wrong you're the expert here and so you can either be loyal to mom or you can be loyal to dad right. and if you can only be loyal to one you can never please both of them because you're always making one person upset mm -hmm. so in those cases often let's say a child grows up with their mom 
they're loyal to their mom, want nothing to do with dad. Then they realize their mom was manipulating them and then they become completely loyal to their dad and they want nothing to do with their mom. And that may seem like a, you know, a homecoming or something happy, but it's not the most healthy solution. No, because that means they still only have one parent. They have access to one parent. Um, You said something that I kind of want to ask you about. So the loyalty bind, um, is it possible? Like, let's just say the loyalty bind switches. At what point would that happen um, during the child's age? And I, I don't really know the statistic as far as that. But do we typically see like maybe teenage years um, if it's ever going to happen? Like when, when, would that, when would that switch happen? There's, there's basically kind of two types of kids who, ha- who suffer from having a parent erased. Okay. And these are not my definitions and they're not scientific definitions. But We just have, talk about from your experiences. Yeah. yeah you have yeah. The, the hostage child and you have the brainwashed child. And the hostage child probably wants to see their erased parent. Um, they miss them. They have questions. They're curious. And with this child, the, the parent who controls them says, if you talk to the erased parent or try to reach out, you'll suffer consequences. So those these are direct threats. Yeah. So those consequences might be subtle. Uh, like, I'll just be unhappy and sad. Um, mm. Or it could be, you'll be homeless. I will Direct take threats. Bed. I will take away your phone. I will take away social media. I will, and the bed I actually have a recording of of the mother saying, "I'm going to take away your bed if you keep on insisting on on talking to your dad." God. And so these children often, when they turn 18, usually within one day to six months, they are on a plane, on a bus, trying to find that parent, and often they will move in with that parent right away mm. now what what can then happen afterwards is because obviously that the erased parent has been through a lot of trauma and harm if they haven't dealt with this combined with the fact that they have no relationship history these relationships can also fall apart very quickly so where does that leave the erased uh, what does that leave the child they've run away from home and then now they don't have a connection with their erased parent so I've seen children and parents work through this, that, you know, they, they, they take a step back and they say, look, we need to learn how to communicate. We need to set boundaries. Sometimes uh, it's saying to the parent, hey, I know you've been through a lot, but you really can't talk about my other parent like that. I need yeah. to stay out of this. I need to focus on the future. Uh, sometimes it's with the parent accepting that uh, they can't impose rules that the child isn't used to. And I see this more for 16 year olds, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they can't be as strict as they want. They can't be, they can't just focus on discipline because they don't have that foundation. Right. So there is hope and it's, I, and most of these situations end up very well, but I think for the parents to realize that even if the child comes running to you at the age of 18, there's still work to be done. Just like there's always work to be done in any relationship. Right. Right. And, uh, and then the other advice I would have is for the parents is to just focus on giving love and building the future. And someone shared with me a text message of a son who at the age of 18 says, reaches out to his dad after his dad has been texting him for years with no response and says, I just realized I've been manipulated by my mom. I've been living a lie for 20 years. I feel off about this. I treat you awfully. I feel really bad. And I'm tired of her abusive crap. And the wow. dad responds with, 
correctly saying, I'm so happy that you want, that you want to be in a relationship with me. I'm here for you. I love you. Yeah. Let's, let's stop talk. But it doesn't say you're right. Your mom is a piece of work and she manipulated you and I have court documents to prove it. And so to focus on the future and not get into proving attack mode, um, letting yeah. it go. And sometimes kids will come back, but then they'll still say, Oh, but you weren't there or you, you did X, Y, Z. And just to let the love prove that that's wrong over time. So should a parent keep court documents? Should they keep a box? Like, should there ever be a day of reckoning when they're like, Hey, I know we're good now, but I just want to show you this box. Here's the hundred thousand dollars that I spent trying to fight for you in court or let it go. So, So here's the thing. Should they keep it? Yes. If the child asks to see it, and some kids do, mm-hmm. by all means, have it. But don't offer it up. But don't don't offer it. I mean, the most I would say is that if you ever have any questions, I'd be happy to answer to answer you and to show you anything that you want. Okay. Uh, and and sometimes the kids might ask that years later. Um, I know in my case, there was stuff that I asked to see at the age of 34. So that was 20 years after my parents divorced. Wow. And I didn't want to, but I didn't want to hear it or there wasn't a need for it later, earlier. So keep it. But what I would advise parents against, which I do see, and I think this is very dangerous is they say, I'm, I know I'm going to lose in court, but I'm going to keep on fighting and spending all this money. So one day I can show my kid this. I hear that so much. And I would say that. If you know you can't win in court and this is costing you so much money to stop and then find other ways to show your kids that you love them. And that could be from putting a blog on social media, just by sharing positive memories and letting them know that you want to be there for them. Becoming an advocate. That's such great doing volunteer work, having a box of letters for them, but something to show that, but you know, to say, Hey, I, because then, you know, kids often are turned off by this when the parent says, I am a martyr. Look at me. I am like, you know, I'm Jesus walking, you know, with the cross. I'm the saint walking on the bed of nails and I've suffered for you. And kids get turned off by that because they're like, well, I don't deserve this. I can never repay this debt. I wouldn't have done this for you. I don't love you as much. So it pushes them away. Whereas if you said, hey, you know, when I realized that the court wouldn't, I wasn't going to win, um, I felt really heartbroken, so I decided to become a volunteer at a local school. So even if I couldn't be with you, I would help other kids. And here oh, are all these letters absolutely. I saved, family photos, and like, look, you know, maybe get the family, you know, at a family reunion to hold up a sign, mean like, you know, hey, Jason, you know, we miss you and love you, and just and just have it there. So if, so if they ask, then you can show that. But going bankrupt through court, you know, like I always say, like if you're gonna go to court. You need to think like a lawyer and you need to have a clear strategy to win. And if that's not your game, and I think that's fair, uh, you're, you're not going to win and don't, and, and, you know, don't bother. Um, At what point should, um, cause I hear it so much. People will absolutely go bankrupt. People will exhaust their 401k, they'll take right. out loans from families, um, and all full while knowing it's a lost cause because you can't beat the other side. Cause I feel like if there's a parent that's so dead set that they're willing to lie, cheat, keep a child away, still manipulate the court, perjure themselves just to keep you away from your child. And you don't have that same level of fury 
it's so hard to go in there and fight. And at what point, besides bankrupting yourself and all that, at what point do you just say, hey, you got to, you have to stop this? I've had to say that to some clients, like, listen, sir, you, you got to stop, okay? It's time to stop it. Ideally, I would, before you start, and this is what's very hard for people to understand before they even start this process, um, to have the number written down beforehand. Mm. And um, decide what your number is going to be. I was talking to somebody recently who was very wealthy, and his number, and this is going to sound crazy to a lot of people, was $400,000. Woo! And legal fees, uh, fighting for custody. And he went through about $120,000. Uh, so I fast, think right? Filing one motion that was dismissed. You get a few psychologists, yeah. And you know, obviously, this person you know had a few million dollars in net worth, but um, and he, I mean, he, you'll, you'll run through that absolutely, quickly. you know, with 500 $700 an hour you know, for your billable hours, you do run through it really fast, especially when they know that you have um, the funds to support that. You know, one thing that I've always said is it's called family court and I've attended so many sessions, court sessions with clients of mine and nothing in family court resembles anything that I would call family. It's war. Yes. Whomever can go in there and tell the best lie Mm-hmm. whomever can manipulate the judges, whomever can evoke the most sympathy. As Ginger said, whoever can, whoever is the better parent, not who's the most capable is best, who's ever better. Uh, and you're letting individuals that don't even know you decide your fate and your, your child's future. Now, the a statistic that you mentioned on erasingfamily.org, you said in the U.S. alone, there's over 22 million parents that are being erased from their lives after divorce or separation. Now we know all these cases, they might not have to be lifelong alienation. If a family is going to repair and a child, you know, maybe let's just say mom and dad are just pissed off. Divorce has happened. What is the average time that we'll see um, them coming back into each other's life? Like if it's not going to be a permanent erasing situation, six months, a year, two months, like, oh, I was just mad. Here's literally. I have have no idea. And I think it would be very hard. So, so just to back up. So those numbers, those are numbers from Professor Jennifer Harmon. And she is the first person who I know of to conduct polling research because most of the numbers prior to this were estimates based on what percentage of court cases are awarded certain types of custody, what percentage are high conflict, but there are a lot of people who'd never go to court. So mm-hmm. she did a phone poll and then she did further internet polling. Oh, which every time she does the polling, the numbers get worse, not better. Okay. So, wow. So 22, so 22 million is, is kind of the minimum estimate that we have, right? That's through just, polling. Okay. just through and polling. Some of these cases might go on for months years and some are decades. So I would say in general that if there isn't something dramatic that happens, five to 10 years. Jeesh. That's, all, that's a whole childhood. Like, God, uh, be, I mean, because if either, so I think the, and this is conjecture. And also the problem is the parents who reach out to me are the parents who are generally on three plus years of this. Yeah. Right? So, so, the people who reach out to you are not statistically 
that you can't prove anything with that because those are the people who are desperate. It's just like also more than half of the followers on my page are mothers who can't see their kids. Does mm. that mean that it's equal mothers and fathers? No, mothers might be more upset. They might be more willing to tell their stories. There's a lot right. of things going on. So this doesn't prove anything. So I would say that either within a few months, there's some serious intervention and this doesn't get any worse and the family can have some therapy, coaching. The judge puts their foot down and actually scares the other parent, which is rare. Very rare. Or if not, this will be dragged on for years until one parent basically gives up or the kids age out of the court system. Because once the kids are 18, the courts can't do anything. So, so aging so out or the other parent giving up. Is there? Yeah, you're, looking at, you're, you're looking at three months or 13 years, kind of, I would say. Right. Yeah, because we just don't know what, you know what's on a person's mind. So aging out of the court system and then the kid can kind of go whatever way they want to if they've not been so seriously manipulated that they have no desire or uh you know that then the court you said the court can scare them right. <sighs> how do we get the other parent the alienator the eraser how do we get their attention do we are we only able to scare them in court and a judge to maybe enforce something or is there something that an alienated parent can say to this person so that they can give them access to their child. I would say that the alienated parent probably cannot, but what can happen is that the other people in that person's life, they can have a lot of influence because, especially when you have cases where it's not due to a personality disorder or some other sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, craziness. Yeah. What, what often happens is if someone says, I'm really mad at my ex. I'll give you the typical, the stereotypical. Okay. Mad at my ex. He cheated on me mm-hmm. and he left me to be with another woman. Mm-hmm. And we as a society or as friends, lawyers, educators can say, that's awful. You must be very upset. Uh, I hope you can heal and move forward. Or we can say, girl, take him to the cleaners. Don't let him see the kids. Take him for every penny. Burn his clothes make him pay because you're suffering. And yep. so those, I think those things, especially when, when it's about revenge, we can intervene. The system can change. So there isn't this financial incentive um, to get more parenting time, which there currently is now because you get more child support. Yeah. You can often get access to the house. So I think that's something too. And then in the cases where there is a personality disorder that's underlying this, there needs to be a lot of intervention and that often has to be done with a, with a, a provider who knows how to work with these very difficult cases. And there's very few of those providers right now. Oh dear God. That's possible. <laughs> yeah. But you know, also it's again, if you can go to court and you can do this, people will. So I think the answer has to be that the courts have to not, let these cases prosper and they have to spend their attention on to actual cases of child abuse. Mm-hmm. But if you know, you can go into court and drag the other party to court for years on visitation modifications, right. Of like yeah. who gets Tuesday night, who gets Wednesday night, small percentage of modifications. Cause that becomes a way to abuse the person by dragging them through court. And Absolutely. also it's a way to not end the relationship. Carrying. So you're still carrying on the relationship. Right. So for a lot of people with these personality disorders, the reason why they're doing this 
is so that they can stay in that person's life. They can see them in court. They can see them, you know, suffer. They have this contact with them. So, um, the and they're other, getting some know, sort of joy, some sort of sick, twisted joy out of this. So what a parent can do who's, who can't see their kids is also not to engage. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard, but you know, if there's name calling, if there's threats from the other part and there's books on this, Bill Eddy is a great resource on how to deal with difficult people of just not engaging because they want you to get angry and they want to, you know, you know, piss you off. They want to have a reason to be the victim, correct? Right. So what you have to do, and it's interesting because a lot of parents are posting their text exchanges. And just like I talked about earlier, there's this parent who posted this great exchange of not entering into blaming the other parent or becoming a victim and just saying, this is great. I want to move forward and have a relationship with you. If the parent says, I'm not letting you see the kids because you can't control your temper. The worst thing you can say is, and you just love to manipulate. You are always manipulating. You love to pull the strings. You love to do this. And you right. are a borderline personality disorder cluster. <laughs> That's the worst thing you can do. Don't diagnose them, y'all. Don't. Right. As opposed to saying, you know, well, that is what the agreement says. And, uh, you know, and just responding calmly with the facts. But if you get into this war, you're never going to end. And it just encourages them to be, to be worse with you. So it, it's very hard. I think working with a coach can be, can be key in these types of things because it's, it's training in like jujitsu. It's yeah. like, it's like it's deflecting the pain back and right. not dishing it out. And this is, it's really, really hard because they know you, you live with them. They know they how know to the triggers. They know what to say. They know your insecurities. So that's often where, you know, sometimes using an app where all of this is logs and where it's all in writing can be very helpful to take a step back. Um, and also one thing I suggest to parents all the time is if this is contentious, find a way to exchange the kids where you don't see each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Such a basic thing, but like, you know, and not just a public place, but like one parent drops a kid off to school, the other picks them up or Sunday school or swim practice, whatever it is, but don't be in the same space as that person. If it always leads to conflict, because also the, and I've talked to kids and this is why I think is the most tragic because a lot of people say, Oh, if a kid rejects a parent, they must've been told all these horrible lies about the parent and all this. And and so many kids, when I ask, well, what were you told about your mom who you didn't see for 10 years and who you quote unquote chose not to see? And they'll say nothing, but the exchanges were so stressful. It was easier for me not to see my mom than to go through the exchange. Mm. So kids avoid conflict so much. So you have to find every way to reduce that conflict while still being there in your kid's life and not, you know, being allowed to be pushed out but not creating more conflict. So if showing up at the door to look at the kids causes conflict, then the exchange point should not be the house. Not at all. And that's something that I would say is worth having a court order. And the other thing too is, you know, we need to be talking to parents going through this before they go to court. Because when they realize what's going on, usually they've been in court for one to three years. Mm-hmm. And then it's almost too late. 
Absolutely, because now they have injunctions in place. They spent money. Their energy level is gone. There's uh, and the conflict is even worse. Mm-hmm. I always thought that there should be some sort of um, pre or post divorce mandatory parenting and psychological testing. Um, I think people should do that before they get married or before they have kids together. Because yeah, you know, like absolutely, like before we you become a parent, I absolutely i don't this is not legal probably in the u.s but you should your emotional intelligence should absolutely be tested or your compatibility with your mate but that we don't get that that doesn't happen and then we have this court system that enables uh those people that especially know how to manipulate and to cause divisiveness in their own family oh this is a lot this is so much so the documentary tell me Uh, How many documentaries have you done, first of all? So I have made three documentaries. Jeez, girl. My goodness. So the the first one about something totally different, it was about uh, a girl's soccer team in Argentina, and they were fighting to be able to play soccer because it's considered a sport only for men in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And then the other, and that's called Goals for Girls. Mm Mm-hmm. And in 2014, I, I came out with a film called Erasing Dad, and that focused on the plight of fathers in Argentina to see their kids after divorce. Mm. And the reason why it was all fathers is because the law in Argentina said the custody automatically went to the mother until that film came out. And <gasps> then they changed, you changed the law. a law? Whoa. Oh, yeah. Because Ginger, girl, you're a bad woman. Like, because, because so many, because everybody was so scared to talk about this before Raising Dad came out. And after Raising Dad, everybody started to share their stories. And the government saw that they had a big problem on their hands. And also, you know, it, it was very outdated because it's this assumption that the mother's always best. Um, and then they also allowed uh, for joint, par- joint parenting to be, joint custody to be an option, which it wasn't even an option before. That doesn't mean that everyone in Argentina has joint custody now, but at least you can request it, right? Right. So, so that was the big change that came out with that documentary. And I moved back to the U.S. in 2015. And I was like, well, I need to make a follow-up. And this will be international and English. So I just put up a Facebook page called Erasing Family, just so no one else would take the name. And this is what I always do with the project. You know, I just yeah. like get all the URLs and the Facebook and social media so nobody will take it. Me too. <laughs> people just started messaging me like crazy. And a lot of moms started messaging me. And that's when I saw that this isn't a gender issue. This is an issue of whoever has the more, more money, more access to lawyers, who wants to fight dirtier. And the system just only cares about taking people's money. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the other thing I started to see on social media were the kids themselves reaching out. So using social media as a platform to protest what they were going through, sometimes trying to talk directly to the judges, creating Facebook pages, like bring me home so I can see my dad or my mom and oh. reaching out to me directly. And, and all the stories I found in the documentary I found on Facebook. So who do you see? I know you've experienced some, um, and it's, I, that's something that's kind of alarming to me because in the blended in black community um, and beyond, we hear mostly of alienated fathers right mostly now but you said you've seen it on both sides who has the most visceral i know you gave some some circumstances you know who has most money who wants to fight but who are the better alienators moms or dads or is there one that's just 
that's worse. That's the thing. I think that there are biases within the court system. Certain judges have their own bias too. So, you know, I was, I was dealing with a group of, you know, dads who were trying to see their kids in San Diego and the leader of this group, and he was very businesslike about it, but this was so tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a database of all the judges and their prejudices. So he was like, okay, this judge doesn't like Latinos. Oh, and he's like, Clyde, you're Latino. So how are we going to like triage this? And I'm just like, this is crazy town. It's crazy like, that people have to do that. And he's a and he, and he, by the way, was a Latino. And, you know, and he's there being like, okay, so we have a judge who hates Latinos. How do we work around this? And I'm just like, okay, this is just crazy that this person's a judge. But so some judges are biased against mothers. Um, there is okay. a general bias against dads. There's a huge bias against African-American dads. Mm-hmm. Um, they're seen as deadbeats, not wanting to participate in their kids' lives. Mm-hmm. And that is not borne out by any research um, yeah. at all. But that's what people assume. So I think you have this court bias and for historical reasons, you know, that bias often tilts in the favor of the mom. That being said, I think that in these cases of alienation, because there's also a difference between a legal system that just makes the situation worse. One parent kind of gives up. The other, you know, is maybe not trying to have the other parent in the kid's life. And you just have this loss of contact. But in a case of this alienation or campaign against another parent, I don't think there's any difference between the genders. I don't think there's a gender that does it better or worse. Okay. I think what I have seen is that also step parents can get involved. Mm. So sometimes it's not the parent that's alienating. It's the step parent or their parent that's doing this. Okay. I think that's very important to acknowledge. And, And what I will say is that the moms who can't see their kids they deal with a lot more shame because unfortunately, and this is a bad thing, you know, if a dad doesn't see their kids, we just kind of accept it. Right. But if a mom says I'm divorced, I see my kids once a month, we go, "Mm, what did that mom do? You would think she's an unfit parent. You know, women get a really bad rap. I told my husband once, I was like, listen, you know, God forbid we ever divorce. I said, honey, uh, you get in custody. I was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm doing every other weekend, you know, because we expect I said, I made that joke in front of my mom and she was like, oh my God, how dare you? A woman is supposed to be with her children. I was like, well, what about if he is more capable parent? Well, you don't want it to look a certain way. I was like, well, come on. I said, that right there is why women have the pressure to do that because right. some cannot parent alone, but there's this negative stigma out here right. that exists where you have to be superwoman and super mom. You know, if, if you're just trying to be a decent person, but you're like, I can't do it, or I need mental help, or I need whatever, I can't afford it, or I want to go back to school. You know, men, we see them after divorce, typically being able to pay the 30% of their income to child support, um, have some sort of semi-fair custody agreement and move on with their lives. It ain't like that for women. It's, it's a little different because now you're doing 80% of the parenting. So, you know, it's, it's a difference, but we're talking in a pretty fair, um, in a standard situation, right. not in alienation. There's right. so many questions I have for you. So you change the law. When are you going to change some laws for us over here in the U.S.? Do you think it's possible for us to actually get 50-50 custody as a standard? I think it is possible. I Do dads really want that? Do American dads really want that? Because they're so used to the way that it's been done for the last, I don't know how many years. 
So there, there's what people want and there's what people are told is the norm. And I would say that in divorce, we do have an opportunity to make things more fair, mm-hmm. more equal, because if you have people who are equally taking care of their kids, you also don't have this big need for child support. Right. Uh, you, so it's because it, it's about sharing responsibility. And then also the other thing I always tell people is that 50-50 is a starting point. There's also going to be cases where people don't live close to each other and that is not going to be feasible. Right. But what the fall 50-50 means is that there's an assumption that both parents have an equal responsibility and equal right to their children unless there is clear proof that one parent is incompetent. And I would say that if that is proven that one parent is incompetent or unsafe, one, there should always be therapy and help for that parent to get them to competency, mm-hmm. which may or may not happen, but that should be the goal. It's not assigning blame and then kicking them out and saying, well, that, we, wa- we wash our hands of that. Right. It's always, if there is an issue, how can we solve it? And then the other thing too is, if this is the assumption, you're just going to have a lot less fighting going on because True. both parents, because this is the big problem. If you are competent enough to see your kid 30% of the time, you're competent enough to have them 50% of the time. Absolutely. So right now, what all these custody evaluations is doing is like, oh, well, we think it's best that one parent has 80% and one parent has 20%. And I always say, if you are unsafe, you are unsafe, period. 100% of the time. If you're safe, you are safe for 50% of the time. So there's no scientific basis to say that there should be anything other than 50-50, except, of course, if there's scheduling issues, people live far apart, or some other things that happen when one parent is deployed or travels for weeks at a time. So, so, but that, you know, and also 50-50, I often tell people too, it does not mean literally 50-50. Right. It, Sharing the time equitably, and that's the starting point. And of course, you're going to have these small changes, um, or there, you know, or you know, in some families, and I, you know, and I've seen this and can work out as you know, the kid is with you know one parent for elementary school, and then maybe they want to move to the city where there's better opportunities for high school. Right. But but if you know that there's flexibility and that the law will support you having equal access, then it's a conversation about how to make it work, as opposed to a conversation about how can I take everything from the other parent? But that, the situations like that that you just mentioned, that's between two healthy co-parents, mm-hmm. not people that are in conflict. Is there a way that parents in conflict can communicate? Because I know many times, I've, I've suggested to so many of my clients, so I'm blue in the face, like, hey, if you can't talk to the other parent, then why not use my family wizard? They're like, I suggested it. They're just not going to use it. And Mm -hmm. so is there a way that you have seen that these parents in conflict are actually communicating in a way that's not harmful to themselves and the child? So I would say, I would say that there's two things. I think what needs to be written into all agreements is that if a parent is unable to protect the relationship with the other parent, then they would lose or get severely reduced custody time. Mm. Oh, a lot of that. Okay, say it again. Say it again. That was so good. So the custody agreement should say, if one parent is unable to comply with this agreement, take the kids to the visitation drop-off, the custody exchange, or badmouth the other parent, then they are unfit to have the child and the custody should revert to the other parent. Ooh. That would, that, that would make everything a lot easier and it would be very clear that you know this is important for the child's health. So if you are sabotaging this, this is what will happen to you. 
Then the other thing that I see is it's called parallel parent parenting where there is no communication right. between the two parents or it's very limited and always done through a third party, like a mediator or a coach. And each kid has separate rules in each house and there's no, you know, if one kid, if the kid, let's say, you know, gets in trouble at mom's house, dad isn't responsible for punishing the kid. Uh, mom's house, they're vegan. Dad's house, they eat meat. And there's just a complete break. But if the kid is aware that there's just two separate systems, it's not ideal, but it's not as stressful as what, you know, we might think it is. And so that would be my suggestion is, is just, you know, there's no communication and both parents talk to the school and deal with the school separately. Right. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. That's so good. If you, if there's not easy, but not impossible. Oh God. So that's the key. It's not easy, but it's not impossible because the other thing too, and this is what concerns me. And this is very, you know, this is the PhD level analysis of what's going on for the people who are really in this world Mm -hmm. is that, um, what I don't want to see happen is that parental alienation becomes the new, like, let's say domestic violence where people go around accusing the other parent of, of alienating, of having a personality disorder and saying, therefore they're incompetent to have any contact with the kid. So I should get full custody because then we're just in this cycle of who's the better parent. Right. And kids really don't respond well to this blame game. So I think it should always be, okay, there's a parent who has an issue. How can we get them back on track? And they might have a lot of hoops to jump through. Maybe they choose not to jump through the hoops, but there should always be a clear path of saying, look, you have these issues. We have to limit your contact with your kid. But if you do these steps, they have to be reasonable steps that you can complete. Reasonable, right. cause you to lose your job, spend all this money on classes. But if they're reasonable, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. But we can't say you have, you've lost all custody and access to your kid. Oh, well, oh, well, forget about them. Start over somewhere. We cannot say that, but we see that kind of happening sometimes in one way or the other, maybe not directly. Right. Well, Ginger, I thank you so much for being here today. You, I've learned so much. And I, I, like I said, I follow you. Love your page. I love what you're doing. If there's any way Naja and Blended in Black can support Erasing Family, all you got to do is holler because we're friends now. You're going to be like my personal Sagittarius. You're going to be my Sag. Well, what I would, what I would advise um, everybody out there, if they want to learn more, to go to erasingfamily.org. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Erasing Family. And we have a very active community, and we encourage people to post their stories. They can also share their story. If they go to our website and click on Share Your Story, you can upload a tribute video to your kids, which we then share online. Mm. And it's all about sharing love with your kids. It's not about explaining everything that happened to you. And we are all about helping parents tell their stories better so they can become better advocates, also become better parents so that they are ready when their kid reaches out to them. And the whole reason why I'm doing this documentary is so that the kids who see it will be encouraged to respond to that phone call to that email if there's been years of no contact. Mm. So that moment is coming and the parents who are raised have to be ready for it because I tell them you might get one shot. And if, if they call you and you pick up the phone and you're angry, you're defeated, you're depressed, you have no energy, you are sad, you are an alcoholic, you will lose that shot. So you need to be healthy, happy, and prepared so when your kid comes back to you, 
they want to be back with you and you're ready to help your kid who has probably been through a lot of trauma and they need a strong presence. So you might not be able to see your kid now, but you can prepare for the moment that you will. And you cannot ask them to leave the other parent and come to you if you can't provide them with support and love. Mm. And you can only provide that when you are strong yes. and healthy. Love it. So get, so get your act together. So when they come back to you, Girl, you, you better tell them, Ginger, you better tell them, tell them, get your ish together. Mm-hmm. And don't be long faced. Cause like she said, you got one shot guys. I'm going to be sharing every single link everywhere that you can reach Ginger and her organization, Erasing Family, Thank you, everything Roger. on the blog. Um, you'll see a pretty picture of her. You'll see this Aww. amazingly dope work that she's doing and every single link so that you can connect with her and tell her your story will be right there. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. There's no telling who we have next time. Thank you, Ginger. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm doing crazy. I know I'm crazy. Now you're